Reflections from Round Hill. You're in for a real treat this morning. Our guest preacher today is the Reverend Jake Miles Joseph, who is a United Church of Christ pastor. He travels around the state and fills in for people as well as once a month. He is the minister in residence at First Church Fairfield. But his day job is at the Anti-Defamation League, where he's Connecticut's associate director. And he focuses on incident response and statewide capacity building to fight hate and bias. So we welcome Reverend Jake Miles Joseph. Let us worship God. Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. Listen now for God's word. Jesus addresses the disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides in you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live in you and you in me. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is a great blessing to be with you here in backcountry and at Round Hill Community Church. Thank you to Reverend Shannon White for organizing my preaching visit with you this morning as we celebrate Mother's Day and God's presence. My deep gratitude as well to your senior minister, Reverend Dr. Ed Horseman, for welcoming me to his pulpit during the season of sabbatical journey and rest. We send our prayers this morning for his care and well-being in this time of renewal. While this is my first time at Round Hill Community Church, it is certainly not my first time here in backcountry Greenwich. I grew up between Colorado and New York City, but I was blessed to spend the summer with a large extended family in the old Saybrook area of Connecticut, where the, river, the Connecticut River meets Long Island Sound in a lush estuary. From those idyllic summers as a child in Connecticut, I was hooked on this state and the idea of someday living here. Fast forward in 2019, I was recruited to Connecticut to serve as Guilford's associate minister at First Church on the Green, and since then have become Connecticut's associate director for the Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, fighting hate and bias full time. I still maintain my preaching skills as First Church Fairfield's preacher in residence, preaching once a month. And it's so fun to have a job where I'm statewide, sort of as almost chaplain in residence statewide for Connecticut, getting to preach in different places like here in Round Hill, and serving this place I get to call home, Connecticut. Since it's Mother's Day, I want to start with a little bit of a story about my mom. And she has always been full of advice, probably always will be. On this Mother's Day, I remember one particularly excellent piece of advice that she gave me over the years. She always said, 
wherever you move in life, wherever you live, whenever you're in a new place for a short time or a long time, to the degree you can, learn to do what the locals do and to love what the locals love. This will keep you happy and young. Rather than remaining in your old habits and patterns and activities when you move to a new place, at least try and learn the activities and patterns of where you live. If you live in South Florida, maybe, you know, learn to snorkel or, you know, dance salsa. If you live in Iowa with that great rich soil, learn to garden. If you live in Colorado, learn to ski and hike. If you live in Texas, sample some barbecue or, you know, learn some rodeo. If you live in Kentucky, you must absolutely go to the Derby. If you live in New York City, maybe learn to ride the subway and at least know the beautiful paths, pathways of Central Park. So following this advice, when I moved to Connecticut, I took my mom's advice and became a semi-regular attendee and divot stomper at polo, here at the Greenwich Polo Club and also up in Farmington. Now, as a student of theology and history, polo is actually fascinating. Sunday afternoons in the summer with a picnic at the polo grounds have helped ground me in this place and give me a deeper sense of belonging to and from Connecticut. I've also learned how very complicated, ancient, and nuanced and meaningful this polo sport is. According to one source, polo is perhaps the oldest team sport. Imagine that. Although the exact origins of the game are unknown, it was probably first played by nomadic warriors over 2,000 years ago, but the first recorded tournament was in 600 BCE, 600 years before Christ, between the Turkmens and the Persians. And modern polo was first played in the 1800s in Newport, Rhode Island. Fascinating. This is a sport with almost concurrent geography and timeline to the development of our Christian religion all the way to the migration to New England. Polo is fascinating because of its nuance and its depth. It is not an easy sport to understand or to follow. The more you learn about the ponies, the handicaps, the rules, the strategies, the more it sort of unfolds in nuance and complexity and possibility. It's kind of like my favorite biblical passages to study as a minister. The more you learn about them, the more you study them, the more unfolds in truth and possibility. This Sunday's scripture passage is perfect for my visit with you here in backcountry today because it foreshadows the day of Pentecost, which comes two Sundays from this one. It is a deeply complex and nuanced Johannine, or Gospel of John, passage. In John 14, Jesus tells the disciples to get ready because a new era of God is coming with something Jesus calls the parakletos in Greek. Parakletos, or Holy Spirit in English. Now, unlike God the Father, Mother, the parent God, and Jesus... This third aspect of God is mysterious and complicated. It is not obvious, but it is also very beautiful. It is not easy to understand on the surface and requires a lot of explanation and study. 
Understanding the Holy Spirit is therefore somewhat like watching and trying to understand a polo match for the first time. It is beautiful, it is full of nuance and parts, and there's so much to learn and think about. When people back in Colorado, where I moved from, ask for me to describe polo to them as I post on Facebook about these lovely Sunday afternoons, I find that almost every description I come up with is insufficient. Vocabulary completely fails me. It's impossible to describe or translate polo to anyone who has not attended a polo match. It just isn't really transferable to other sports. Yes, it it has horses, but it isn't horse racing, and it, it is certainly not a rodeo. It has sides and points, but it doesn't resemble soccer or football. Yes, it has ancient origins and is very complex. It has a lot of British connections, but it isn't like lacrosse, rugby, cricket, or croquet. What is this ancient yet new thing to arrive? How do you describe something with so much nuance to someone who has never experienced it before? In John chapter 14, Jesus has risen from the dead and is waiting for the ascension. He knows that soon Pentecost will come and the people of God will meet the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus explain this? The author of John is trying to convey for the first time this idea of the Holy Spirit to the people of God. What will this new manifestation of this person of God be like? What does it do? How does it work in our lives? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you parakletos, advocate, comforter, helper, to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. Mysterious. William Barclay was one of the great scholars of Christian theology of the 1900s. Uh, He was a Scottish minister of the Church of Scotland, which we call the Presbyterian Church here in the United States, and a professor at the University of Glasgow. He had a great sense of humor, and even though he passed away in 1978, a lot of his writings and musings about scripture are still very relevant and bring to life the scripture passages in a fun way. This is how he described this passage about the parakletos and the introduction of the idea of the Holy Spirit. And please excuse that I'm not going to attempt a Scottish accent because that would not go well. So you just have to imagine this with a lovely Scottish voice. But Jesus does not leave us to struggle with the Christian life alone. Jesus would send another helper. The Greek word is parakletos, which is really untranslatable. The authorized version translates it as comforter, which, although hallowed by time and usage, is not a good academic translation. Another translates it as helper. It is only, however, when we examine the word parakletos in detail that we catch some of the riches of the Holy Spirit. It really literally means someone who is called in, someone who is summoned for a purpose. But it is the reason why this person is summoned that gives this word its distinctiveness. The Greeks used this word in a variety of ways. 
A parakletos might be a person called in to give witness in a law court in someone's favor. The parakletos might also be an expert called to give a specific advice in some difficult situations. Maybe kind of like we call up YouTube videos today when we're stuck on something. Or the parakletos might be a person called in, for example, when a company of soldiers were depressed or needed some enlivenment, sort of like a motivational speaker. The motivational speaker aspect, I think, is probably pretty close to the truth. Always a parakletos is someone called in with a specific purpose in a time of need. Let's stop there for a second. A really important point. The Holy Spirit comes in with specific intent to insist in ways that are material and direct. The Holy Spirit has a purpose. The Holy Spirit isn't simply a bystander or a spectator on our lives, but the Holy Spirit is also not a player in the game like another human being. The first takeaway today is that God is always present with us, not to interfere with our lives, but to be a help, an advisor, a motivational speaker, an encourager. Barclay continues, and I find this absolutely fascinating. Comforter is the most common translation here, and was once a perfectly good translation. It actually goes back to the 14th century. But in the 14th century, the word comforter in English meant so much more than it does today. The word comforter comes from the Latin fortis, like a fort, which means brave or strong. So a comforter was someone who enabled a dispirited, hopeless creature to be brave. It's a brave maker. Nowadays, comfort solely has to do with being with someone in a time of sorrow. Comforter is someone who sympathizes with us when we are sad. The nuance of bravery enabling is gone. Beyond a doubt, the Holy Spirit does comfort us in times of sadness, but to limit the Holy Spirit's work to that function is to belittle the Holy Spirit. We often talk about having to cope with things. That is precisely the work of the Holy Spirit, to take away our inadequacies and enable us to cope with life. The Holy Spirit substitutes victorious for defeated living. Don't you love how Barclay describes things? To take away our inadequacies and enable us to cope with life, to substitute victorious for defeated living. Taking this into account, we now hear this whole scripture passage completely differently. If you love me, if you keep my commandments, says Jesus, I will ask the Father and he will give you Another one, one who will make you brave. An intervention specialist, a helper, a comforter, yes. One who substitutes defeat for hope. A bravery maker. What our study today of this fascinating and complex passage reveals is that God through the Holy Spirit is not inactive in our lives and yet also doesn't take over the wheel for us entirely. God's work is that of giving us bravery when it is needed, to cheer for us and to sometimes also take the field and stomp the divots, making life less uneven and dangerous. 
Greenwich friends. The best analogy I can come up with for the Holy Spirit and how it works in our lives, the parakletos is the spectators who tread in and stomp the divots at polo matches. You see, I think we make one of two sort of extreme mistakes theologically when we think about God and the Holy Spirit and how they work in our world. And I think even one of us can kind of pivot from one of these to the other depending on the moment, but they're both kind of extreme ways rather than the nuanced of God's presence. On one hand, we think of God's existence as a cosmic spectator sport. God is in the bleachers watching from afar, maybe even watching on television with no active role in the game. Maybe we occasionally hear God yelling over the ends of the field or we catch a glimpse of God in the grandstands. This view of the divine gives God no active role or interaction with our lives. On the other hand, we may also view God as one of the equal other players on the field, on the pitch with us. God's quartet has a handicap of plus 10 and cannot be beat. We feel like in life we are playing against God sometimes, and the other half of the time we feel like God is on our team. When things are going our way, we falsely imagine that God has joined our team. When things are going poorly, we envision God against us in some cosmic reversal. In fact, I want to offer today that based on Barclay's analysis, the actual meaning of parakletos from the Greek, the Holy Spirit is most like the spectators, the active spectators, if you will, at a polo match. Unlike all other sports, there's a moment where those of us who are spectators in polo take the field. Hundreds of people of every age and background stream across the sideboards to stomp divots. This is called treading in. It is a sudden flow of community, conversation and friendship, with the purpose of actually making the field safer again for the horses and participants. It is a moment during the game that takes my breath away and steals my heart. The Dallas Burston Polo Club describes this moment this way. It is a bizarre sight. The umpire has called the whistle. The players are galloping away to their grooms as the crowds of spectators vault the picket fences and take their place on the pitch. Gentlemen abandon their jackets, and certain ladies pick their way gingerly over the churned grass, smoothing out the surface with the help of their heels. The tradition of divot stomping may appear absurd to the onlooker, but it is in fact one of the longest standing and most important traditions of the sport of kings. The practice achieves two things. It engages the crowd and allows them to play an important part in the game that is so enjoyable to watch. Often you'll find the adults just as excited to participate as the children. I know that's true for me. Whether at halftime or between chukas, guests are involved, invited onto the pitch. More practically, a large crowd divot stomping is the most efficient way of repairing the field for play to continue. A horse's hooves, especially at flat gallop, are highly adept at turning the most impeccable grass service into a churned mess. And even a single seven-minute period can wreak havoc on the grounds. 
Pressing the divots into the ground reduces the risk of fall and injury during the play, as well as allowing the ball to travel farther with more accuracy. Helper, advocate, comforter, motivational speaker, but maybe the best translation for the Holy Spirit is that of communal divot stomper. God works through the actions of the multi-generational people of God, us in community as Holy Spirit. The body of Christ requires that all of us tread into this communal life together and stomp the divots for each other's play. Like the image of the community traversing the sidelines to stomp the divots on the pitch, so too is the work of the Holy Spirit a congregational and communal vision. God is active in our lives and our safety, but through the life of community and humans playing with each other. God tends to the surface of the pitch constantly by treading in on our behalf and reducing the risk of fall and injury as well. That is precisely what the work of the Holy Spirit is, to take away our inadequacies and enable us to cope with life. The Holy Spirit substitutes victorious for defeated living through the divot stomping and the treading in of community on one another's behalf. Jesus will soon, by John chapter 14, in our lectionary journey, leave to heaven. In his place, he sends the mysterious parakletos. We are called to tread in, empowered by the parakletos, Holy Spirit, to ensure steady, safe, and brave living for one another. As a community, we have parakletos living when we do the work of the church together. I love remembering my mom on Mother's Day and how she once told me how to properly live in Connecticut, I must choose something they do in Connecticut to make my own. And I chose to go to Polo. I'm still learning, and I assume I always will, the new complexities and dimensions of this ancient sport, as you've heard me kind of stumble over some of the nuances of the complex vocabulary even today. It is a sport, however, that has become a powerful metaphor for me for many things. First among them, the power of community in the stomping of divots and treading in for one another. Now, Round Hill Community Church, it's your line. How will you continue this work of the Holy Spirit here in backcountry, both today and in all your tomorrow? Reflections in Round Hill is brought to you by the friends and members of Round Hill Community Church. For more information, visit roundhillcommunitychurch.org.